Just going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, which I believe you'll find on page 151 of the Bibles provided. As you turn there, I want to encourage you to stay there for our entire time. You know, our series through Old Testament books, we usually are going, are, are taking bigger chunks at a time, just because we want to see the big picture of the entire book. Uh, so that means we're going to cover a lot of, of more ground a little bit more quickly, and it'll help you to know where we are. So I'll try, to, I'll try to be good to remind you of where we are in these chapters. It'll help you to keep these open the entire time. Uh, a little housekeeping note, a reminder, if you're new to the Bible, this is a great place to be. Welcome. Uh, the chap- when I say chapter number, that is the big, bold number you see on that page. When I say verse number, those are the, the small numbers that you see after it that kind of look like footnotes on it. So we're, we're going to start by reading. Uh, you'll follow along as I read. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 11. After I'm done, I'll say this is God's word. Would you join me to give thanks for his word by saying thanks be to God. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your sons, uh, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn you away. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be quickly kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But, this you sh- but thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and, build- and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a, pe- to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do all the, to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. If you had one hour to do anything that you wanted to do with no consequences, what would you do? I'll let you sit with that for a moment. I think it's a powerful question. It's not original to me, but I think the question is sort of like an x-ray scan of your heart and of your motives. Of course, when you think about that question, you and I don't live in a world without any consequences, right? Sometimes it might feel that way, but that just means the consequences are delayed. The Lord sees all, and the Lord will right all wrongs in due time. 
Further, the Bible tells you over and over again about the consequences of rebellion against God. The consequences of going your own way. Famously, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Or even consider the end of chapter 8 in Deuteronomy. God says, if you forget the Lord your God and go after uh, other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So it's not that there aren't consequences, but this is just for the sake of the question. If you had one hour to do anything that you wanted and would face no consequences, what would you do? The question reveals that you might be avoiding the wrong choice only because you're afraid of what will happen if you make the wrong choice. And it's not that that's a bad motivation. It just can't be your only motivation. You see, the question reveals whether you're motivated negatively by fear of consequences or positively by your love for the Lord. You see, you're not, to me- you're not meant to think just about how bad sin is. No, you're also meant to treasure how good God is. If you settle just for the negative motivation, sooner or later, following God is going to become a drag. God will become the cruel, withholding God who just tells you all the things not to do. You're not meant to concentrate on what's bad without being captivated by what's better. I think that's largely what's taking place right here in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. Moses speaks to the Israelites who are again at the, at the entrance of the promised land. And these chapters come within a larger section, a big case for why the Israelites should love the Lord and walk in his ways. Today in Deuteronomy 7 and 8, Moses' Moses focus mainly on positive reasons for why they should do that. To sum up these chapters, they say you should love the Lord, you should love the Lord and walk in his ways because he first loved you and he provides for you at all times. Chapter seven will show you the reason of God loving you first. And chapter eight will show you the reason of God providing for you at all times. So let's look at that first positive reason for why you should love the Lord and walk in his ways because God loved you first. Now just look again at the beginning of chapter seven. And there you'll find Moses calls them to follow one specific instruction from the Lord. That when God brings them to the promised land, they are to drive out the seven nations that currently inhabit it. Even though these nations are bigger than them, even though they're stronger than them, God will, quote, give them over to you. He adds other instructions to this one. He says, not only are they to uh, drive them out, they're to make no covenant with them. He says, they're to show them no mercy. He says, they're not to marry any of them. Now, if... Deuteronomy 7 and 8 are like a swimming pool. This opening paragraph is like the deep end. Right away, this is a hard instruction to hear. But the Bible says the main way that they are to demonstrate their love for God is by keeping his commandments. That's the main way you demonstrate your love for God. That's what Jesus says to you, John 14, 15. He doesn't say, if you love me, uh, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. No, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So your love for him and his love for you is already in place, but that's demonstrated by obedience. 
But you do have to admit that these commands at the beginning of chapter 7 are really hard to hear. They raise a few questions. For instance, look at chapter 7, verse 2. What does it mean that they are to devote them to complete destruction? Well, I'm helped by one Hebrew scholar who explains that the word for destruction is actually closer to the word for renounce. In other words, when they are victorious in battles against these nations, and that will involve destruction, when they are victorious, they are to refuse to take any gain or profit from these nations. So that means things and people can be renounced without being completely destroyed. Now, even if you don't know the original language behind that word for destroy, uh, you can see that just from the context. So let's say the Israelites really did make a complete destruction of these nations. Why then would they need the instruction not to make a covenant with them? Or why would they need the instruction not to marry any of them? These instructions imply that there must still be people around to make a covenant with or to marry. Now, even with that part of the instruction explained, something still just doesn't sit right. All these instructions at the beginning of chapter 7, they seem to contradict one purpose that God has for his people. We saw this back in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. There, God said that when his people followed his rules, they would be like a light to the nations. But here, following God's rules would make them a judge for the nations. How do these two things fit together? Well, remember all the way back to the promises that God gave to Abraham and to his descendants. This was in chapter, Genesis chapter 12. Not only does God say that he will use Abraham and his descendants to bless the nations, God also says that he would curse the nations who curse them. Soon after that promise in Genesis 12, God foretells in Genesis 15, verse 16, that his people would be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. Why that delay? Part of the reason for that delay, God says, is that so the sins of those who live in the land would be complete. So God is giving the promised land, not just as a blessing for his people, but as a way to judge the people who are sinning against him, who live there. Both purposes, hand in hand. So yes, God promises to bless the nations, but God also says he will hold all nations accountable for their sin. This tension is carried throughout the Old Testament. You see it when God expresses who, uh, you see it when God reveals himself in Exodus 34, 6 to 7. These verses are alluded to here in Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10. This tension that God is gracious uh, and forgiving, but at the same time, he won't clear the guilty. We're saying this is a tension between blessing and judging. It's a tension, but it's not a contradiction. These can fit together. As the Bible advances, God resolves that tension through the gift of his only son. Jesus is the ultimate descendant of Abraham that you need. For all those who trust in him from any nation, Jesus takes the judgment that you deserve so that you can receive the blessing that he deserves. So there it is, blessing and judgment, that tension resolved in Jesus. Okay, so what we're saying is God's people demonstrate their love for him by following his instructions even when those instructions are hard to hear like they are at the beginning of chapter 7. But there is one more thing that's hard to hear at the beginning of chapter 7, especially given our own country's unfortunate history about interracial marriage. The instruction in verse 3 is hard to hear. 
Remember, though, you think of Numbers chapter 12, Moses married a woman from a different country. So the issue wasn't that those from different nations had a different ethnicity or those from different nations had a different color of skin. The issue is that those from these nations had a different God. That was the issue. Just look at verse four of Deuteronomy seven. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Isn't that what happened to King Solomon that we read about just a few minutes ago? That in all of Solomon's great wisdom and in all of his great riches, what was his downfall? First Kings 11, uh, verse four. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So these instructions at the beginning of Deuteronomy 7 might be hard to hear, but they're not pointless. They are purposeful. They're not pointless. They're purposeful. They're not meant just so that Israel survives. God gives them so that their relationship with him survives. Oh, Christian, lest you think that instructions like these are so far removed from you, God warns you about what can compromise your relationship with him. God warns you about that. 2 Corinthians 6, for example, God warns you about making close partnerships with those who don't follow Jesus. 1 Peter 4, God warns you about uh, that the time is past for living like unbelievers do. The time is past for living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. God tells you in places like the Gospel of John that you are to have a heart for the world, but he also tells you in the book of James to keep yourself unstained from the world. Now you do all this, not because you want to show that you're better than other people. You do all this because you want to stay close to God. That's the function, that's the purpose of God's instructions, at least one of them. Now why should you, or Israel for that matter, want to stay close to God? Well, that's how chapter seven continues. They're to follow God's instructions so that they'll be distinct from the world and remain close to God because, positive reason number one, God loves them. They're to stay, they're to want to stay close to God because God loves them. Sounds simple enough, right? Moses tells them three different ways that God loves them. God loved them by choosing them. God will love them by leading them. And God loved them by saving them. These ways are all laid out in the rest of chapter 7. So God loved them by choosing them. Moses lays this out from verses 6 to 11. He says, out of all the peoples on the, on the face of the earth, God chose them to be his treasured possession. So they're meant to feel the immense privilege of this. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, God chose us. But pride could soon undermine that privilege. They could, under, could end up thinking, well, God must have chose us because he saw in the great tunnel of time that we had this great amount of potential. He saw that when we would face a choice between right and wrong, he knew that we would choose the right. So that's why he chose us. He chose us because God must have known that we would turn out to be really good people. That's why he chose us. Now, my friends, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, if Israel were to say this, would it be true? Would, Would that be right? Of course not. And neither would it be right for you to say this as well. Moses reminds them, God didn't choose you because of how great you were. God didn't choose you because of how much you could help his cause. Why did God love you and why did God choose you? Basically, he says, he loves you because he loves you. 
The reason is in him, not in you. Now, you might react to that and say, well, hey, Steve, that doesn't sound very fair. Why does God choose some people and not all people? Oh, my friend, remember what God was working with. You see it described in Genesis 6 before the flood. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or think of God was, what God was working with. Think of Romans 3, 10 to 11. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. So the picture of what God was working with is not one of fourth grade kickball at recess, right? Where the entire class is begging the team captain to choose him. So given what God was working with, the question isn't, why did God, uh, why did God choose some and not all? Rather, the question should be, why did God choose any and not none? God's unconditional, gracious choice of his people is presented as leading to a deeper knowledge of him. After Moses talks about this, he says in verse 9 that this is how they can know that God alone is God. Because if there was something in them that caused God to love them, then they could take some measure of credit for why they are where they are. God's unconditional, gracious choice to love shows that the glory belongs to him alone. My friend, I actually think that's really good news for you and me. I've heard one pastor say that every Christian should have a good answer to the simple question, why does God love me? How would you answer that question? You and I end up thinking that it's uh, our performance that earns us or keeps us in the love of God. I think I, I functionally think that way all the time. I think even this week, Wednesday, I was a wreck. Because I end up thinking that God loves me based on my performance of productivity. And Wednesday, I had a massive headache and I wasn't all that productive and I just kind of fell down. Why does God love me? If you base it on your performance, well, you might end up feeling wrongfully proud when you're doing well or wrongfully devastated when you're doing poorly. Now, it's not that God doesn't care about your sin and how you act. We're not talking about your sin. We're talking about your security. If there was nothing in you that caused God to choose you in the first place, then there is nothing in you that will cause God to unchoose you. The reason's in him, not in you. That is a far better security than your ever-changing performance. So why should they follow God's instruction in order to stay close to him, in order to stay close to God? Well, big reason, because God loves them. God loved them by choosing them, not because they earned it, but because of his grace. In verses 12 through 16, Moses tells them another way that God loves them. Moses says God will continue to love them by leading them. Now in Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 16, in these verses, Moses basically tells them that if you guys listen to God, then God's going to bless you. He says God's going to increase your families. God's going to increase your crops. God's going to keep you from getting sick. God's going to remove all threats from you. And God's going to make everything right. It sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Now, I think this is one of those chapters from the Bible that is ripe to be misapplied. Those who teach some form of what's known as the prosperity gospel might use a paragraph like this to say, see, if you obey God, then you'll live in his favor and he'll lead you to health, he'll lead you to wealth, he'll lead you to happiness. 
What's more, if you don't have any of these things, it must mean that you're not obeying God or just not trusting him enough. Now we'll get another chance to address that when we get to chapter eight. But for now, someone who says something like that needs to see how these verses fit in the Bible. The blessings of verses 12 through 16, they don't refer to middle-class American blessings. They're blessings tied to the promises made to Abraham, the blessings of land and descendants. They're blessings tied to the reversal of the curse from Genesis 3. And as you zoom out and fast forward in the Bible, you soon realize that it wasn't their obedience that secured these blessings. It was Jesus's obedience that secured them. He's the one who followed the instructions of the covenant given to Israel at Sinai. He's the one who secured the blessings of the covenant given to Abraham. He's the one who reverses the curse of the fall through his death and resurrection. But those who trust in Jesus, though they do enjoy rest and peace with God, they are not promised to experience these blessings in an earthly sense. Now, we are told as as we follow Jesus on earth, we're to expect to be treated like he was on earth. And yes, we enjoy the good good gifts that God gives us, but the, the Bible says we are to be content with food and shelter because we are content most of all with him. That our longing isn't for the blessings of this world, but of the next world. The true promised land where God is lovingly leading us. The book of Hebrews tells you that here you have no lasting city. So you are to seek the city that is to come, whose builder and designer is God. So I think in applying this paragraph to yourself, you can ask, am I motivated to live for God by his loving promise? to lead me to heaven. Does heaven motivate you to live for God? A lot of Christians think about heaven and I think they end up getting worried or they end up just getting confused. Here's a better exercise that I've heard. Why don't you think about heaven until it makes you happy? That, I hope, is a little bit of a snapshot of how to interpret the Old Testament well, especially when it's not clear to see how it points forward and is fulfilled in Christ and then applied to the church. So why should they follow God's instructions in order to stay close to God? Big reason, because God loves them. He loved them by choosing them. He will love them by leading them. And he has loved them by saving them. This is laid out in verses 17 to 26. And those verses start off basically by telling them this. Hey, if you guys think that these nations that you're going to battle against are bigger and stronger than you, if you think that, guess what? You're right. (laughs) They are bigger and stronger than you are. And to which they might respond, well, hey, that's really not that encouraging. Oh, but hear us out. You're not going to go forward by underestimating your opponents and saying that they're smaller than they actually are. You're not going to go forward by overestimating your own ability, thinking you're stronger than you actually are. No, you're going to go forward, verse 18, by remembering what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. So when they're afraid and when the promised victories ahead don't happen immediately and they don't happen easily, they are to remember. Remember that God handily defeated the biggest opponent that the earth could offer. And my friend, when you're afraid, When you're worn down, you are to remember the same God of your greater exodus who defeated even greater opponents for you in Christ. 
it reminds me of one of my uh, favorite prayers from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. This prayer is called the Resurrection. Uh, some of it, it, it goes like this. I'm just going to read it for you. Um, o God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, the conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death. He tramples the powers of darkness down, and he lives forever. Jesus, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my death, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me, O God of my exodus, that Jesus' resurrection is the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, is proof that the claims of justice are satisfied, is proof that the devil's scepter is shivered, is proof that his wrongful throne is leveled. O God of my exodus, give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in Christ I rose, in Christ I live, in Christ's victory I triumph, in Christ's ascension I shall be glorified. When you're afraid, when you're worn down, you are to remember the same God of your greater exodus. So let's just take a summary of where we've been so far. God calls his people forward to love him and walk in his ways. And sometimes his instructions to do that are hard for us to hear. But those instructions are never pointless. They're always purposeful. God's people should follow his instructions because he wants them to stay close to him. He loves his people. He loves you. That's the motivation. Not to earn his love, but because you had his love. To say he's loved me by choosing me even when I refused him and had nothing to offer him. To say he loves me by leading me even though I would go my own way without him. To say he loved me by saving me even though I deserve to be lost and ruined. I love God because he loved me first. So God calls his people to love him and walk in his ways. Why should they do that? We're saying these chapters focus mainly on positive reasons. In chapter seven, you should do that because God loves you. In chapter eight, you should do that because God provides for you. He provides in good times and in bad times. In the first half of chapter eight, God reminds them that he didn't forget them during times of scarcity. In the second half of chapter eight, God tells them not to forget him during times of prosperity. So follow along as I read Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 6. It says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. What would you say was the worst time of your life? 
I know that's not pleasant to think about, maybe just identify it. What would you say was the worst time in your life? Maybe that's right now. And friend, if, if it is right now, we want to be here for you in the same way that Jesus, the friend of sinners and sufferers, opens his arms and welcomes all those who come to him. Now, during the worst time of your life, now looking back on the other side of that, could you see that God was faithful to you? Could you see how he sustained you? Maybe not with what you wanted, but with what you needed. That's pretty much what God is reminding his people of right here. Just reflecting on that, maybe one way to apply that. When you pray with someone else after our time today, I'm saying when, not if, because I think it's a really good practice, a good goal every Sunday to pray with someone else. And then you ask how you can pray for him or her, and they tell you something hard that's going on in their life. Instead of you just only trying to fix it, pray. God, during this hard time in my friend's life, would you prove yourself, even in this time, to be faithful and good and trustworthy and wise and loving? Now, in these opening verses of chapter 8, there's one phrase that sticks out to me, and it comes close to the beginning of verse 3. It says, he let you hunger. He let you hunger. That tells you, their hunger didn't come to God's surprise. Their hunger came by God's permission. Even, we could say, it came by God's design. A design for a greater purpose. That they would know that they don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think this is another hole in the prosperity gospel. It doesn't know how to handle suffering. I shared this in community group a couple weeks ago. There are some Christians and some churches uh, who treat the Christian life sort of like the Lego movie. Does anybody, I don't know if you've seen the Lego movie, the theme song of that movie uh, goes like, uh, everything is awesome. Uh, Everything is cool when you're part of the team. It's very happy. It's very happy-go-lucky. Now, I'm not just trying to be harsh. I'm trying to be honest. For a lot of people who gather at church, their lives are anything but awesome at the moment. So what happens when your life isn't awesome? What happens when you don't have the so-called blessings that the prosperity gospel says you should have? Well, the lesson from Deuteronomy 8 is that your deepest peace and your highest satisfaction is never meant to be in your circumstances, is never meant to be in your earthly gifts, it's meant to be in your God. I think John Newton, the old hymn writer, captures well the lesson from Deuteronomy 8, writing about trials as if he's speaking from God's perspective, these famous lines. He says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free to break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in me. So first half, God didn't forget you in times of scarcity. Second half of chapter eight, don't forget God in times of prosperity. Follow along as I read verses 11 through 20. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up 
And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through this great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall therefore remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. We didn't kind of do the same experiment that we do with the kids, okay? Do, the, do this for ourselves. Take a look around you. Do any of the things that you enjoy in this room, things that help to facilitate our gathering for worship, do any of these things come ultimately from you? I'll do it. I didn't make this microphone. I didn't buy this microphone. I didn't harvest and process the trees and put the wood together for this pulpit. I didn't manufacture and stitch this, these clothes. I didn't bind and print and publish this Bible. I didn't translate it. I didn't preserve it. I certainly didn't write it. Even this sermon. Yeah, I worked diligently to study and to write, but the ability to do it, the energy to do it didn't come from me. I've been taught. Others have invested in me. Even the opportunity to do this didn't come from me. There were circumstances that I had nothing to do with that led to me becoming a pastor of this church. The lesson of Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 20 is captured in the humbling question of 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you have not received? Applying this, I think, if pride is the root of our rebellion against God, proud thinking like Deuteronomy 8, 17, my power and the might of, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, if, if pride is the root of our rebellion against God, then a lack of gratitude to God isn't just a fruit of pride. A lack of gratitude to God feeds your pride. Listen to how Romans 121 describes those who suppress the truth they know about God and worship created things instead of the creator. Romans 121. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or, here's the key part, Give thanks to him. What did that lead to? But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Rebellion follows soon after thanklessness. I know your life might be the opposite of awesome right now, but you have endless reasons to sincerely and frequently thank God. When you stop thanking God, you will start, however subtly, to reduce how good God is because you're not noticing it. When you stop thanking God, you will start to reduce, however subtly, how much you need God but you're not noticing it. When you stop thanking God, you will start to wrongfully enhance your own goodness. You're not thanking God who, who's left for the credit. You're going to wrongfully enhance your own goodness, your own power. If you're not thanking God, well, who's to thank? It must be you then. Oh, friends, 
Thanklessness feeds your pride. Why should God's people love him and walk in his ways? Chapter 8 says, because God provides for you at all times. The first half of the chapter, during times of scarcity, God provides you all that you need, and what you need the most is him. The second half of the chapter, during times of prosperity, God is the one who's provided you all that you have. Here's maybe another way to say it. You should love and follow God because you can have nothing. But if you have God, you have everything. Or... You should love and follow God because you can have everything. But if you don't have God, you have nothing. In conclusion, Deuteronomy 7, big positive reason why you should love and follow in God's ways. Because God loves you. Deuteronomy 8, because God provides for you. God presents his own goodness as motivation for you to trust him and to obey him. Friend, you can look back at the history of God's people. When God's people fail to believe in God's goodness, their disobedience quickly follows. Goes all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve. What it was one of the lies that the serpent convinced them of. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. He just said one tree. The serpent made God out to be far more restrictive than God actually is. The serpent plants in their mind, look at how much good God is keeping you from. Don't believe God's goodness, disobedience quickly follows. Doesn't become worth following. Or think of God's people in the wilderness. Back in Numbers chapter 11. God's people had the audacity to say, we had it better in Egypt. Where the food was good, the food cost us nothing. And now all we got is this this manna. They believed that God kept them from good by freeing them from slavery. They failed to believe God's goodness and disobedience follows closely behind. But there is goodness. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his own son, born of a woman, to be the true and better Adam who came in the line of Israel. And Jesus, too, was led out into the wilderness where that serpent of old met him. And Satan tries to tell Jesus, if God was really good to you during times of scarcity, he wouldn't let you be hungry. So, Jesus, why don't you turn these stones into bread and make food for yourself? And how does Jesus reply and remain obedient? He trusts God's goodness and quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. And God proves himself faithful to provide in times of scarcity, even for his son. Jesus succeeds where God's people have failed. Jesus said of himself that my food is to follow the instructions of my father. He always trusted in God's goodness. And you know, the only thing that compromised Jesus' closeness to his father wasn't his sin, was ours. On the cross, he took the judgment you deserve so that you could have the blessing he deserves. And now when you turn from living your own way and you trust and open yourself up to him, you have God. And if you have him, you have everything. So my friend, my brother and sister in Christ, you will keep following in God's ways only as you treasure how good God is. 
And there is no greater display of God's goodness. There is no greater proof of God's love. There is no more valuable provision than God's gift of his only son. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you, would you work in our hearts according to your word and shape us, lead us away from the lies that would minimize your goodness and elevate ours. Keep us thankful, keep us humble, keep us joyful in light of your love for us and your faithful provision for us. God, keep, keep our hearts to live for you because of these great reasons that show your goodness. Would you work in us today, maybe even work for people for the first time to open their eyes to your goodness and the gospel of your son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.